you would, let's turn in our Bibles to Job chapter 5. Begin reading in verse 7. Yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. I would seek unto God, and unto God would I commit my cause, which doeth great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Who giveth rain upon the earth and sendeth water upon the fields to set up on high those that be low and those which mourn may be exalted to safety. He disappointeth the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot perform their enterprise. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness and the counsel of the forward is carried headlong. They meet with darkness in the daytime. And they grope in the noonday is in the night. But he saveth the poor from the sword, from their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. <clears throat> so the poor man hath hope, and iniquity stoppeth her mouth. Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. For he maketh sore, and bindeth up, and he woundeth, and his hands make whole. He shall deliver thee in six troubles, yea, in seven there shall no evil touch thee. In famine he shall redeem thee from death, and in war from the power of the sword. <clears throat> What's the primarily look there in verse 17 this morning? Behold, happy, blessed is the man whom God correcteth. Almost exactly as it's written in Hebrews. Therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Many times men have a misunderstanding of what chastening is. I know it's instruction and I know it can be correction. But it's training. It's like when our children was going up. It wasn't that I just always corrected them. That would, that would be horrible if all I did was spend all my time just correcting them. But it's trying to teach them. Teach them to obey. Teach them to obey authority. Teach them, teach them to look past the end of their nose. Teach them. Teach them. You know what God does? He teaches his children. I tried to preach a message on the radio this morning as many as have heard and learned of the Father come unto him, and they shall be all taught of God. And they are all taught of God. We know there's no way we can get into all this about Job, and I want to kind of not look so much into context here, but get this thought. Now, Job was a man that was suffering horribly. Everything that happened, it happened by the decree of God. He said, the Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord's going to teach him. I mean, he took all that to teach him, yeah, and he took his health. He took all those things. He's going through severe trials. 
He lost his children and all the means of making any money. You know, the only thing he didn't lose was his wife. And you know what she said? Why don't you curse God and die? You know, when he was right, when he needed her, she said, and he said, you talk like a foolish woman. You talk like a woman who don't know the Lord. Why would we curse God and die? Should not we receive good at God's hand and receive evil? But Job had three friends. I don't remember all their names, but this one is, this chapter is actually him speaking. I think his name is Ephaz. And he's speaking to Job. And they come to visit him. And they basically tell Job he's getting what he deserved. They're basically saying, you are reaping what you sow. If you suffer, it's because of sin. Now, indirectly, we know that's true. All suffering is because of sin. If it was not because of sin, no one would ever get sick and no one would ever die. We know that's true. But to put everybody, I mean, to live under that shadow of that of guilt and despair, Job said back a couple of chapters, he said, you are physicians of no value. Job needed a friend, but these were not friends. These friends, and I want you to see this, they think they can interpret what God is doing to Job. And they think they can come and explain it. They said, this is what's happening, Job. You know, they just sinned somewhere. You, you're filled with pride. We probably was. All of us are. But see, they thought that they could interpret. They thought that they could understand the mystery of God's providence and explain it and explain it. All Job's friends, now listen, spoke under the assumption that suffering was the fruit of sin, a principle which is, though true in general, is not to be unconditionally applied to every specific case. They all forgot that God's people might be exposed to suffering, not as punishment or even as correction, but a trial to know what is in our most times something goes wrong, you know what? First thing we think of, well, Lord, don't love me anymore, and he's punishing me. You, if you don't ever get anything this old preacher ever says, I want you to get this. I want you to hear it. I want you to understand it. God does not punish his children. He punished one son, and that was his Lord Jesus Christ. And he laid his sin, our sin upon him, and he bore the sin, and now we are whiter than snow. And those that he loves, those that he loves, he rebukes and chastens. And those that he don't love, he just leaves them alone. He must have really loved Job. He must have really loved Job. And he did. He did. You think what the Lord taught us from this book and what this man suffered. What I'd like for us to consider for just a little while is this thought. How many times do we misinterpret what our Lord is doing in our lives and in the lives of others? Why is the Lord sending this trial? Why is We do ask those questions. We do. As I was considering Job and his friends and how Job and his friends mis, both misinterpreted what our Lord was doing for Job, not only doing for Job, but doing in Job. 
thoughts about the song of William Cowper come to my mind. If you would find your bulletin. I don't know if I've ever did this before. I pray this is what the Lord would have me to do. I want to take this song. It was written by maybe a poem by a man named William Cooper. A man named William Cooper. Who was this man? Well, the, when it was originally written, it was entitled uh, Light Shining Out of Darkness. This was a man who God talked some things through heartache. He uses metaphors. He uses a storm and minds and smiles and flowers to illustrate this meaning in such a way. This man, he lived in 1731 to 1800. It was written, this poem was written in 1773, just before the onset of a depressive, he was very depressed, illness. And during this and probably many other times, he tried to end his life. It was first published by Cowper's friend, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. And like I said, the hymn was later written, put into a songbook, and it was entitled Light Shining Out of Darkness. And he used this verse, John chapter 7, Verse 13, now listen to this verse. What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. What he does now we may not know. We may never know in this life, but you shall know hereafter. Because you know why? He makes it plain. So let's just look at this song. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footstep in the sea and he rides among the storms. God's way is not mysterious unto him, but it is unto us. Things happen and we go, why? It's a mystery, but God, this is how God moves. He moves in a mysterious way. It's ways that we don't understand. His ways are not our ways. His ways are past finding out. That's what it says in Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Job said in chapter 26, verse 14, and he lists several things, and he says, Lo, these are parts of his ways. But how little a portion is heard of him. God is so great. God is so large, and he moves. Mysterious. It's, a, it's amazing. It's amazing that, to me at times to just... You know it's God. It's, it's mysterious. And his, he plants his footsteps on the sea and he rides among the storms. But he said there, his wonders to perform. I'll give you a few verses. You know, and I always, I've mentioned this several times. 
usually how a word is used in the scriptures. When it's first mentioned, it's the law of first mention. How it's usually first time it's mentioned in the scriptures, it's how it's used all the way through the scriptures. And I thought this was interesting. He said in Exodus 3 verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders. And he did. You imagine they had been in there for 400 years and God's going to display. He's going to move. God's moving. I'm going to deliver my people. And he displays all these wonders for everyone to see. Which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he'll let you go. Exodus 15, 11. Who is likened to thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? And Job said in chapter 9, verse 10, which do it great things past finding out, yea, and wonders without numbers. His wonders. He's not trying to perform his wonders. Everything that's happening is a wonder. It's God moving. Why? God's going to save his people. He come down in Egypt. Why? Why did he? Why did he? Why did he display his wonders? Why did he display his power to save his people? Why did God? Why did Cowper or Cooper? He his wonders to perform. He had experienced something in his life about the wonders of God that God would ever show mercy to a sinner like him. That's wonder. Astounding. He plants his footstep on the sea and he rides upon the storm. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. Our Lord had sent a storm and sent his disciples directly into the midst of the storm. And they were on the ship alone. And he had just fed the 5,000, and he'd sent the multitudes away, and he went up on the mountain to pray. Verse 24, but the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with a wave, waves, for the wind was contrary. They're in a storm, and they're alone. And in the fourth watch of the night, that's the last watch, probably between 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock in the morning, the last watch, Jesus, Jesus went unto them, walking on the water. He plants his footsteps in the sea, and he rides upon the storm. And he come, why did he come walking on the water? Why did he do that? Not everybody saw it. Not everybody witnessed it. It was for his people. It was for his disciples. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they saw him. They were troubled, saying, it is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them. He said, be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid of you in a storm this morning. Has God sent a storm in your life? He comes to his people and he says, be not afraid. I've overcome the storm. I've overcome the storm. He sends the storm, controls the storm, and he sent the storm. 
they're doing what he told them to do. He said, you get in a ship and you go to the other side. Now, they're, now they're walking in obedience. They're not walking in disobedience. He didn't send the storm because they are in disobedience. Why did he send it? To teach them to trust him. Even poor old Peter, he said, if it's, if it's you, bid me to come on the water. He said, well, come on. He said he didn't know. Oh, yeah, he did. And when he began to get afraid, he began to sink. But he walked. Walked. Secondly, deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright design and he works his sovereign wills. Deep, deep and unfathomable minds, unfathomable, not capable of being fathomed or, or they are immeasurable of never-failing skill. Our Lord fashions his stones, his people, to fit his purpose. He treasures up his bright design. They're his. You imagine ever just material things that are, that are hid in this earth. They're his. He treasures up his bright designs we used to work with some granite. You know where it comes? Out of the earth. You know what has to come? Somebody has to skillfully cut it out. Whether it's a piece of granite, whether it's a piece of gold, whether it's a piece of silver, whether it's a, a diamond mine, whatever it is, unfathomable minds of never failing skill. He, he takes people and he fashions them according to his sovereign will. When people built the tabernacle, when they built the temple, they were men that were skilled. They had a skill in, in shaping stones and cutting diamonds. It's just an old piece of rock till you cut it. And not just anybody can cut it. Our Lord is skillful in making his people. Do you know that every stone in the temple was cut in a quarry? It was cut to the exact size. And when they brought it into the temple, they put it exactly in the wall. You know what God's doing? He's shaping you. Never fail, unfailing skill. Deep and unfathomable minds of never failing skill. He treasures up his bright design and he works his sovereign will. Here's a man he taught something. A man named Nebuchadnezzar. Now, man, that's something. This man was. This man lived in the depths of depravity, the depths of false religion, Babylon. And I believe the Lord showed mercy to that man. I believe he allowed them to go into Babylon for 70 years to take the gospel. And God let that man walk out like a wild man. His hair growed out like eagle's feathers. His fingernails growed out like eagle's cloth for seven years. And here, listen. And after God sent him his sanity, he said, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doth according to his will among the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can say unto him, What doest thou? You know what that is? What a gem. <laughs> Grace taught him something. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs. It's his design. 
and he works his sovereign will. Everything is according to his design. Everything. Everybody here this morning is according to God's design. God decreed it. God gave you a desire to be here, and he, he brought us here. That's his design. It's, not, it's no accident we're here. His design. His design. He told Moses, he said, when you make that tabernacle, you make it after what? The pattern. Who's the pattern? That's Christ. That's the design. It's all, and he's going, you know what? Whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate. Why? To conform us to the image of his son. That's what he's doing now. That's what he predestinated. Everything that ever happened. Everything. The third verse. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. I could see Job say that which I feared has come to pass. All my children are gone and everything else is gone. I have no health. You fearful saints, take heed. When God sends the storm like he did to the disciples, when they seem all alone, he comes walking on the sea. And when we see the storm clouds gather, we become afraid and fearful and fearful. We are so busy looking at the clouds, we lose sight of the one who sent the storm. He says, the clouds you so much dread. Can you imagine what Noah thought the first time it began to rain after come off the ark? Here we go again. I could see him. I know what happened last time. That's how we think. It's always the worst. But this is not, this is not, this, these clouds are not that he's sending a tornado. Which he did allow those things to destroy his children. I understand that. But those clouds you so much dread, they're not, why do you dread it when God's going to send a blessing? I remember Elijah. It hadn't rained in three and a half years. Does that mean I don't even think there was probably a cloud in the sky each day? It was the sun shining, but it was just so hot and humid. And God's going to send rain. And Elijah sends the servant out. He goes out seven times. And he said, look toward the sea. He come out and said, I don't see anything. Don't see anything. He come out and he said, I see a cloud about the size of a man's hand. He said, you better get ready. God's sending in some rain. You know what that rain was? It was a blessing. What he's saying, the very thing you, we dread God uses it as a blessing. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy, big with mercy, and shall break in blessing on your head. Listen, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, if you would turn there, verse 27. We dread the storm. The clouds you so much dread. Deuteronomy one twenty seven, and you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he hath brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us and 
to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Do you know what they just said? They said he hated us. And he's brought us forth out here to kill us. That's what, that's what they said. You know what that is? That's unbelief speaking. Whither shall we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, The people is greater and taller than we, and the cities are great and walled up to the heavens, and moreover we've seen the son of the Anakins there, the giants. Now let's look at verse 29. Then I said unto you, Dread not. Look at all this army. Look at all the giants. Would you dread them? By nature, we would. But then I said to you, dread not, neither be afraid of them. The Lord your God, which goeth before you, he shall fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Don't you be afraid. If he sends the storm, there's a reason. The very thing you dread may be the very greatest blessing you've ever had in your life. Really. See how we misjudge things? You know how you interpret providence? But not now what God's doing. We look back and we see everything that God allowed and everything we went through to bring us to where we are right now. Like that story I told you this morning, I'm really almost embarrassed to tell that, but it happened. He allowed me to see religion and go through those things and experience those things. Why? To teach me. And I look back and I see God's hand in every bit of it. Every bit of it. And some of the things that I dreaded most turned out to be some of the greatest blessings. And that's what he's saying. The clouds, you fearful saints, fresh courage take. You will dread these things. They are big. Why would you dread them when they're big with mercy? And shall break in blessing on your head. Now listen to verse 4. This is what Job's friends were doing. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. We are so prone to misjudge what our Lord is doing. We tried to figure it out with our senses. Our Lord, like I said, was punished for our sins. Job's friends thought they knew what God was doing to Job. Job's friends forgot that God, that good men might be exposed to suffering, not his punishment or his correction, but his trials. All things not just some things, all things, work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Don't misjudge him a feeble sense. Trust him. How do we trust him? Well, we trust him by faith. How do you have faith? He gives it to you. But you, you're, he will increase your faith. So what does he do? He puts you in trials. And he teaches you what? And he has to keep teaching us to trust him. Well, how can we, you imagine us all standing there, how are we going to go fight them giants? 
No doubt they're there. The Lord says, don't you worry about it. That's my battle. I'll take care of that. That's the thing. See, we get our eyes on ourselves and on our own ability and our own strength. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Let me give you an example of a man named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. And his brothers, his sons, were jealous of Joseph because Jacob made him a coat of many colors. And the father, Jacob, sends Joseph one day to go check on the brothers, see how they're doing. And when he's a ways off, they see him and they say, look, there comes that dreamer. We're going we're to we're put a stop to his dreams. We're not bowing down to him. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to, they first thought, well, we'll kill him. But then they said, well, we'll throw him in a pit and we'll decide what we're going to do with him. And I can see Joseph over in the pit. He's probably screaming, let me out or whatever. And they're just sitting there eating. They could care less. They just happened to see a, bu- a band of merchants coming. And they said, why? Why should we kill him? Let's sell him. Let's make some money off of him. So that's what they did. And they sold him into Egypt. And they took Joseph's coat of many colors and took it back to his daddy. They said, Daddy, is this uh, your son? They didn't say this is our brother. Is this your son's coat? And Jacob assumed, assumed, and that's what they wanted him to do. They wanted him to believe a lie. They wanted him to think that a wild animal, because they killed an animal and put blood on that coat, they wanted him to think that a wild animal killed him. That was a lie. But Jacob believes that for 17 years. You imagine going through that trial. You imagine going through that cloud. Why did God send this? Well, he sent Joseph to Egypt. We know the story. He sent him to Potiphar's house. His wife lied on him. He sent him to the prison. The guy forgot about him. And then God set him on the throne. Why? Why was he sold into Egypt? To save a nation alive. Okay, God sends a famine. Because Joseph has put up corn for seven years. So everybody would have something to eat. And they're forced to come to Egypt. And they come down there. And Joseph knows who they are, but they don't recognize him. And he speaks kind of roughly to them. He said, uh, is your father, do you have a father? Yes, he's still alive. Do you have any more brothers? Yeah, we got one more at home, Benjamin. He said, I don't believe you. He said, I'm going to prove you. The one named Simeon, he's going to stay here. The rest of you is going to go back and you're going to get that other brother and you're going to bring him down here. And I don't know for sure whether you're lying or not. And that's what he did. Simeon's tied up, and they good boys go back home. And he says, don't you come back without Benjamin. Don't you come back without your younger brother. And they get back, and they says, Jacob said, where you boys been? He said, well, that man down there, he's mean to us. He spoke rough to us. He said, well, wh- where's Simeon at? He said, he kept him. He kept him, yeah, he said, He's keeping him, kind of like ransom. He said, he's going to keep him till we bring Benjamin down. He said, you ain't taking Benjamin down. He probably knew in his mind, them boys did something to Jacob. And you think he's going to turn Benjamin loose with these same boys? He don't know if they're telling the truth or not. But you know what Jacob said? Here's what he said. You imagine standing there. Out of all you've been through, now another one of your sons missing, and they want to take Benjamin. And Jacob their father said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, Simeon is not, and ye will take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. 
he misinterpreted it. It wasn't all against him. It was all for him. If God be for you, who can be against you? But you see how we must judge it? And even when they when they he allows them to take Benjamin, you imagine that. Benjamin. I may never see him again. I may never see any of them again. The next time they come, they come with wagons. <laughs> they come to take you back to, to Egypt. You know why? The best news he ever heard, Joseph's alive. And he said, I don't believe it. <laughs> We're so easy to believe the lie. He won't believe the truth. But see how he misjudged it. But God did all that to save people alive. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. God, had, Look at everything God had brought Jacob through. He went to Laban's house for 20 years. And all those things. And God sent him through it to teach him. To teach him. Whatever he sends our way, it's because he loves us. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Trust him. Trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. You know what? He's not angry with me anymore. He said, in a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord, thy Redeemer. And for our light afflictions, which are but for a moment, they worketh for us, not against us, a far more exceeding and eternal way to glory. The song the solid rock says, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest upon his unchanging grace. And every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope. And stay when everything just gives way. And you're like Jacob, all of it's against me. Just wait. Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Jacob. You sons of Jacob. Verse 5, the, his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. When God brings about his purposes, they're always unfolding. They were unfolding. He's revealing it every hour. I know you probably get tired of hearing me saying it, but I've I've seen these things happen literally. I've seen things happen in my life, and when he, it seems like you don't know the Lord's will. It seems like nothing happens and nothing's going on, and what am I doing here? It just seems like I'm just spinning my wheels. But when he begins to move, sometimes it's all you can do, using the term, all you can do is hang on. Because it happens so fast. And you don't even realize why it's all happening. Sometime I'll just sit down and just tell you just everything that had to happen to bring me and Sandy here. To even bring us together. 
and to bring us here, when it began to happen, it was like clockwork. It was like clockwork. We move in a house. I moved. I have not. I've lived in one house for thirty years. In my move, we ain't even got pictures on the wall. No, we moved in there the last part of July and the first part of September. You asked me to be your pastor. I thought, okay, here we go again. Last thing we moved in, Sandy had a piano, and you know how heavy a piano is. I'm, I slid that thing in, and I'm, I'm just wore out, broke my leg, stepping off the truck. And I said, boy, that's the last time I'm moving that thing. And it was like a little voice whispered in my head, really? And you know, the last thing we moved into the house was that piano. And I moved it about three or four times. But what I'm saying is it happened. And Sandy said, you really believe the Lord would want us to go? And I said, I think so. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste. But sweet will be the flower. I'll never forget sitting over on Danny Belcher's porch. We stayed with Danny and Kathy that weekend, the last weekend in July. And Danny said, they want me to ask you if you'd be their pastor. And it scared me to death. Is this really the Lord's will? Is this really what he wants? And I scared. And I asked Danny, I said, Danny, how do you know? How do you, how do you know? How would you know? He said, sometimes you don't know till you step out by faith. And there was a lot of wisdom in that. And you know what? That was even in Providence. I needed to hear exactly what he said. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. As I thought about this, I thought about a woman when she's in travail with a child. When she gets closer... Them pains don't get farther apart. They get closer together because he's getting ready to bring a child into this. And they are spiritual travails. Paul said, I travailed in birth till Christ was formed in you. He said, and when a woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembers no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. The bud may have a bitter taste, but look now. Wes just told me, I'm going to tell it right here. They're going to have a little boy. <laughs> and she'll have to go through labor. And I, if I was a woman, I'd dread that. <laughs> But when that child is born, none of that other won't matter. And God allows us to go through spiritual travail to teach us to trust him. Last verse. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. 
We may not understand it in this life, but I think one day he said in the ages to come, he will show unto us the exceeding riches of his grace. He may say, Mike, you remember that right there? He remember when you went down there and applied for a job? You just thought you was looking for a job. I had something else in mind. You remember when you did this? Remember when that happened? Remember when you locked and did, did this and it, if that hadn't happened, this wouldn't happen? You remember all that? Yeah. I did that. <laughs> Who did it? God did it. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. Unbelief in Jacob thought everything was against him. Unbelief will always misinterpret what God is doing. God explains. He says in Job thirty-three twenty-three, if there be a messenger with him, an interpreter, one among a thousands who show, shall show unto man his brightness. Let me give you an, show you an example. Turn to Acts chapter sixteen. Paul trying to discern the Lord's will about where he would go to preach the gospel. In verse 6 of Acts 16, now when they had gone through Phrygia in the region of Galatia, and watch this, and they were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word to Asia. They will one day go to Asia but not right now. It's not God's will. After they were come to Mysia, they assailed to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. They said, we'll go to Bithynia. And they passing through Mysia came to Troas, and a vision appeared unto Paul by night. There stood a man over in Macedonia and prayed him, saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. I don't think before that they'd even considered Macedonia. They were thinking about Asia. Come over and help us. That's how God spoke at times. He spoke through dreams and visions. And he, How's he going to speak? He said, a man's over there saying, Paul, would you come over here and help us? We need some help. What kind of help did they need? They needed the gospel. And he prayed, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto him. Now, he says, this is what God's will is then to be done. Verse 11, Therefore, loosened from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Nicopolis. And from thence to Philippi, which was the chief city of that part of Macedonia, it was the capital, and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. Well, God sent us here. Where are we going to preach the gospel at? 
There ain't no churches here. There ain't no synagogues here. Where are we going to go preach the gospel? And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city. He had to leave the city. There was nothing in the city. That city's a picture of religion, just deadness. They went out by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made, and he sat down and spake unto the women, which were resorted thither. Just, Jeff, he goes out and finds some women just sitting there by the riverside, just maybe discussing the Bible or something, maybe just meeting to pray. And Paul just happens to come. And I could see him say, can I just sit down and talk to you ladies? You go, this is what Lord wants? Yeah, that's what this, this is why he sent him here. Now watch. And a certain woman named Lydia, a settler of purple of the city of Thyatira. You know where Thyatira was at? In Asia. This woman's a seller of purple. She's just there on a business trip. She's there selling purple. This is why she's here. If not, she wouldn't have been here. It said a certain woman, so that means there were other women there. And she was probably the only one that heard that day. He wants to go to Asia. God says, no, you're not going. But I'm going to bring Asia to you. I'm going to take this woman. I'm going to bring her to Macedonia. And you don't even thought about going to Macedonia, but you've got to cross her path. And a certain woman named Lydia, seller of purple, a city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, whose heart the Lord opened, and she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And most believe her and her household were saved and baptized. And then they were thought Paul was thrown into the Philippian prison and the Philippian jailer will say oh you know what the Lord just did he raised up a church well how did he raise up that church because somebody said Paul come over and help us <laughs> blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain but God is his own interpreter and he listened to me he will Make it plain. He will one day interpret everything to us and he will make it plain. I'm read you a couple of verses in closing. After Jacob dies... Jacob's and Joseph's brothers, Joseph's brothers, they think that now that their daddy's dead, they're, that they're, Joseph's going to punish them. Joseph then showed them mercy, and he's been kind to them for years. Why would they think that? Why would they misinterpret and think, well, now he's going to get them. Now he's going to turn on them. They thought it was just because of Jacob that he showed them mercy. Oh, no. In Genesis 50, verse 20, But as for you, you thought evil against me. When you sold me into Egypt, you, you had evil intents. That's what you wanted to do, and that's what you did do. Here's the word but again. <laughs> but God meant it for good. <laughs> did he make it plain? You just think about that for a minute. Go home and you just think about everything that Joseph went through. 
And we see that every step he took, God ordained it. God's going to save a whole generation. And the only reason we even know about Egypt is because of Joseph. You meant it for evil. Let me tell you this. I don't know what you're facing. They don't mean it for your good. They mean it for evil. If they could, they'd just destroy you. But God means it for good. The heart of a king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he'll have it to go. To bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. And therefore, fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them, and he spake kindly unto them. Many times we think, well, I'm suffering even for what things I did years ago. I may, I may have meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I hope that was a help. I hope maybe God would enable us to, like old Mr. Cooper, he taught him something. You know, he also wrote another song. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood. They lose all their guilt.